Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die to sleep no more and by asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. That was Andrew Scott in the 2017 production of Hamlet. Welcome to the Plays the Thing, your thing for, your, your thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name is Tim McIntosh. Shakespeare is our greatest playwright, and we left him at the end of part one of this podcast, right as he's beginning his greatest period of work. And Hamlet is at the beginning of that greatest, most fertile period of Shakespeare's life. If Shakespeare is our greatest playwright, then Hamlet is his greatest play. It's hard to kind of summarize just how powerful Hamlet is on stage 
and also at the same time confusing in a way that if you, when the play ends and you try to understand who Hamlet was and what he was pursuing, he's tremendously opaque. And I, I think Stephen Greenblatt is really, really insightful about Hamlet. That Hamlet basically begins for Shakespeare this whole new kind of era of playwriting. And what, what Greenblatt says, I'll read it to you in a second, is that Shakespeare eliminates motive from Hamlet and makes him very, very inward. Let, let me read Greenblatt. I think I'm making things muddier rather than clearer. So this is from Will in the World. Quote, Hamlet marked an epoch for Shakespeare as a writer as well as an actor. With this play, Shakespeare made a discovery by means of which he relaunched his entire career. Already, prior to 1600, he had amassed considerable experience as a writer of tragedy. In Titus Andronicus, Richard III, Romeo and Juliet, Richard II, and Julius Caesar, he had explored the lust for revenge, the pathological ambition and fatal irresponsibility of monarchs, the murderous enmity of households, and the fatal consequences of political assassination. The crucial breakthrough in Hamlet did not involve developing new themes or learning how to construct a shapelier, tighter plot. It had to do, rather, with an intense representation of inwardness. So, if you think about Hamlet, if you've seen a production recently, like, this is the case. The thing that we all remember is that monologue that we just heard, to be or not to be. It's less about the plot of pursuing revenge. Of course, that's what the plot is ostensibly about. It's a revenge tragedy, pure and simple. But the thing that we remember about Hamlet is what's happening inside of him. Another quote from Greenblatt, quote, Hamlet's show of madness, then, seems a cover for something like madness. And then later, Greenblatt continues, by excising the rationale for Hamlet's madness, in other words, Greenblatt's saying, by not really saying what's going on, he's hiding Hamlet from us. Shakespeare made it the central focus of the entire tragedy. The play's key moments, key moment of psychological revelation, the moment that virtually everyone remembers, is not the hero's plotting of revenge, not even as his repeated passionate self-reproach for inaction, but rather his contemplation of suicide. To be or not to be, that is the question. This suicidal urge has nothing to do with the ghost. Indeed, Hamlet has so far forgotten the apparition as to speak of death as the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, but rather has to do with a soul sickness brought on by one of the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. 
just the stage, the, just the, 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 the plotting of Hamlet, even we're talking about how he's kind of like plot becomes secondary to this incredible inwardness that we see in Hamlet. But that inwardness is matched by the very beginning of the play and the kind of overall feel of the play. So the play begins in dark and bitter cold atop Elsinore castle. And the first two words of the watch, so fitting for the rest of the play, the first two words from a couple of guards is who's there. And the question reverberates throughout the whole play. Who's there? Who's Hamlet? Who's there, of course, is asked about this apparition that shows up nightly or some nights on um, the castle walls. It's Hamlet's father's ghost. And Hamlet's father has been killed, killed by his brother, Hamlet's uncle. When Hamlet learns about it late in uh, scene two, he... Um, of course, is spurred on to revenge. But the real, the thing that keeps us coming back to Hamlet has been this thing that, that Greenblatt describes, this sense of inwardness. This sense of inwardness. It is Hamlet's interior life, his battle with suicide, his battle with his own self. That dominates the stage. Hamlet's legacy has been titanic. There have been all sorts of Hamlet's played all over the years. They have been hippie Hamlets. There have been nude Hamlets. Uh, the play has inspired 26 ballets, six operas, musical works by Tchaikovsky, by Litz, by Shostakovich. And that opening line, to be or not to be, it's, it's likely the most quoted phrase in the English language. It's full of memorable characters, the doomed Ophelia, the buffoonish Polonius, the stalwart Horatio, the desirable Gertrude. And it's, it's, it's hard to think of it for me as just a play. It feels to me like it's just a thick cut of life itself. After Hamlet was written in 1600, Shakespeare continues just a string of masterpieces, including Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, and others. But before we talk about those masterpieces, I want to just drop into English history, into Shakespeare's history for just a second. So Hamlet, written in 1600, the year before Hamlet was written was just incredibly tumultuous in England. Queen Elizabeth I had put down a rebellion in Ireland. The Spanish Armada is kind of lurking off the coast of Europe, always haunting England. And there's this kind of long running anxiety among the English people because their queen is unmarried. Queen Elizabeth I, the virgin queen, has no heir. And that, of course, leads to potential chaos. If you don't have a clear bloodline heir, then you get usurpers to the throne um, and you, and whenever you get usurpers to the throne, you get potential chaos and that chaos can kind of like just spill out everywhere. Now, demo, you know, our democratic society doesn't ever have anything like this. Shakespeare's life. Two years before he wrote Hamlet, Shakespeare 
purchases a home back in Stratford-upon-Avon. Why is this important? Um, it's in one of the only examples that we have of the kind of stature that Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, has at the time. The fact that he's able to buy one of the largest houses in Stratford-upon-Avon is evidence that he is accumulating wealth and affluence. A couple years later, uh, Shakespeare's acting company, I mentioned this in the first episode, has to take down its old theater. They get in this kind of land dispute, and um, Shakespeare's acting company, his acting troupe, steals into the middle of the night the piece of property, and they basically take their stage apart, float it down the Thames River, and they reassemble it. When it's reassembled, it becomes and is named the Globe Theater. That's the theater that is most frequently and famously aligned with Shakespeare's work. A couple of years later, Shakespeare has another big loss in his life. So six years earlier, five years earlier, his son Hamnet had died at age 11. And now Shakespeare, 1601, loses his father. Uh, the cause of death is unknown. And what's also unknown is whether or not William could have traveled to his father's funeral uh, from London in time to attend the funeral. It was about a hundred mile journey. Odds are he probably was not able to attend his own father's funeral. So if you think about this, he probably also missed his son's funeral. What that might have felt like to William Shakespeare, not being able to attend the funeral of his son, the only male heir in the Shakespeare line, nor his father's funeral. Surely that, that took some sort of an inward toll on him. The plays that he wrote around this time, The Merry Wives of Windsor. So if you remember episode one, I mentioned um, that Queen Elizabeth I had really fallen in love with Sir John Falstaff, the character from Henry IV, parts one and two, this kind of sidekick to Prince Hal. He's carousing, this overweight jokester, this kind of imposter soldier. And Shakespeare brings him back for Merry Wives of Windsor, and he kind of drops him into a love triangle, a very fun play. Troilus and Cressida is written... Uh, around this time, as is All's Well That Ends Well. We just finished All's Well That Ends Well on the plays The Thing. So if you want to go back and do a deep dive on that comedy, I encourage you to do so. It's not one of Shakespeare's best-known comedies. We're not even really sure why it's called a comedy, except for there's a marriage at the end. So that's kind of one of the common denominators that separates comedies from everything else. You know it's a comedy if people get married at the end and it's usually lighter fare. It's usually a little bit more humorous um, in the tragedies. Ain't nobody getting married. It, ain't nobody even getting a divorce. Divorce would be kind of too clean and bloodless in the tragedies. It's <laughs> it does not end well, but half the, half the, character list is left on stage bloodied and stumped sometimes um another play written around this time 1604 1605 is one of my favorites another hidden gem 
measure for measure. We will probably tackle measure for measure early in 2023. Tune in for that. It's an absolutely delightful play. That brings us to Othello. Othello was written 1604-1605. It is, it, it will crush your heart. I saw the Lawrence Fishburne, Kenneth Branagh version in the theaters, probably in my 20s or 30s. And I only roughly knew the story of Othello and I remember getting to the end and just feeling crushed. It was so unjust. It was so unfair. The story is about a Moor who is a great general, and he is living in Venice. And like Coriolanus, a general that we'll meet a little bit later in this podcast, he just he is the man of might. Everyone in Venice is so thankful for him singing his praises, but it gets a little complicated when Othello falls in love with Desdemona, one of Venice's, you know, beauties, one of Venice's leading ladies, um, the daughter of a prominent man in Venice. They get married. It seems that the city, despite having some hesitations because he's a Moor, he's not a Christian, they accept um, the marriage. Well, except for one person. And this one person who doesn't accept the marriage is one of Othello's lieutenants who is in the battles with him. The character's name is Iago, I-A-G-O. Iago. And the star of the play, I'm not saying the protagonist, he's actually the antagonist, but the star of Othello is Iago. Iago plants the seeds against the innocent Desdemona, Othello's wife, who is as innocent as the snow. She has done no harm. But Iago wants to turn Othello against Desdemona. And through all sorts of tricks and ruses, he ends up being successful. And so the climactic scene, and it is crushing, is Othello, the warrior, with his hands wrapped around his beautiful wife, strangling her. During a production in the Old West of America, one member of the audience was so overcome by what was happening on stage that he took his pistol out and he shot the actor playing Iago. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing, but apparently on the actor's tombstone were written the words, here lies the greatest actor. That's a funny little twist. The point being it is a troublesome, moving play. And one of the things that is so intriguing about it is that Iago's motive for planting the seed of jealousy is famously hazy. Here's 
the line of explanation. I hate the moor. That was Kenneth Branagh stating, playing Iago, stating the motive for planting the seeds of jealousy. Why? He hates the moor. Now, there's a brief mention that Iago seems to be worried that Othello might have slept with his wife, with Iago's wife. But what's really interesting is that in the original play that Shakespeare took his plot from, the Iago in that play has a very, very clear motive. What's that motive? Oh, he's in love with Desdemona. It's super simple. But Shakespeare takes that out of his play. It's so strange. But, but for me, I think Stephen Greenblatt really captures this. This is kind of part of this new way that Shakespeare is shaping his lead character. He did it in Hamlet, and now he's done it with Iago. Let me read a little bit of Stephen Greenblatt again from his biography of William Shakespeare called Will in the World. I I highly recommend it to you. This is from page 325. Though the play Othello is constructed around the remorseless desire of Iago to destroy his general, the more Othello, Shakespeare refused to provide the villain with a clear and convincing explanation for his behavior. That explanation would not have been difficult to find. It was already there, fully articulated, in Shakespeare's source for his play, a short story by the Italian university teacher and writer Giambattista Giraldi. So, in Giraldi's short story, Iago wants to get with Desdemona, so he makes Othello jealous to turn against her so he can get with her. Shakespeare just cuts that out. Just cuts it out. And he makes Iago's motives like famously hazy. Um, going back to Greenblatt, quote, Shakespeare's villain, Iago, does not dream of possessing Desdemona, nor is she the particular object of his hatred. Right? The quote continues, Iago's murky attempt to account for his obsessive, unappeasable hatred in Coleridge's memorable phrase, the motive hunting and motiveless malignity, is famously inadequate. I'm just going to say that again. Iago's murky attempt to account for his obsessive, unappeasable hatred is famously inadequate. Continuing the quote, and crucially, this inadequacy becomes an issue in the tragedy itself. Near the play's end, when Othello has finally understood that he has been tricked into believing that his wife was unfaithful, that he has murdered the innocent woman who loved him, and that his reputation and whole life has been destroyed, he turns to Iago and demands an explanation. Exposed as a moral monster, caught and pinioned, Iago's terrible reply, his last utterance in the play, is a blank refusal to supply the missing motive. The lines are, Demand me nothing. 
what you know, you know. From this time forth, I never will speak word. These words are specific to Othello and to the fathomless cruelty of its villain, but the opacity extends to crucial elements in each of Shakespeare's great tragedies. End quote. So, I hope you understand what Greenblatt is saying. It's whenever you go see a movie, whenever you read um, a, a short story with with an active protagonist, they're pursuing the treasure, they're pursuing the girl, they're pursuing revenge, whatever it is. There's almost always, every time, supplied a motive for their desire. Right, I am pursuing this um, this money because I wanted to make my parents finally be impressed with me. You know, something like this. I just saw a movie with um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks recently. Um, I think the movie was made in the early two thousand. Catch me if you can. And Leonardo DiCaprio plays a. He, he basically is just, he's a man that um, defrauds people through writing bad checks and has this really sophisticated way of making checks, of just basically beating the system. And he accumulates a massive amount of money. He's all the way running, from, all the time running from the law. Tom Hanks is after him. And near the end of the movie, fast forward if you want to see the movie, because it's, it's good. Leonardo DiCaprio's character, you know, returns to his mother's house. And the whole time that he's out to kind of like scam everybody, what he's really, really wanting is for his mother and father who divorced when he was 16, 17. He just wanted them to get back together. And everything was about an opportunity to present his mom, his dad with the money to, for them to kind of undo their divorce, to be re- reunited again, for them to be a family again. Shakespeare, if he was writing Catch Me If You Can, would have supplied none of that. And so there would have been this kind of intrigue about Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Why exactly is he doing this? I mean, because it's fun, I guess, because it's fun to beat the system. And, and, and what, what you have to do as a viewer is you have to supply hypothetical motives. You have to say... I think Iago did it because he's a racist. Okay, that's possible. I think he did it because Iago felt cuckolded. You know, he thinks that Othello really did sleep with his wife. Okay, sure. You supply motives and what ends up happening, I think, and what Greenblatt's really great at pointing out is that the character becomes stickier. Kind of gets in your head. What is Hamlet's deal? What is Iago's deal? That opacity becomes, it is really intriguing. And so it's the inner psychology of this public character standing on the stage. Their inner psychology steps forward forward instead of being backgrounded. A tremendous, tremendous achievement. Othello is followed shortly by King Lear, 
written around 1605, 1606. Um, King Lear <laughs> is kind of like the saddest, cruelest Cinderella story you can imagine. Two bad sisters, one good sister. But instead of a fairy godmother in the Disney story who comes and helps all of Cinderella's dreams come true, we have instead King Lear, who's going senile, who has a brutishly cruel streak, and he is here to crush the good daughter Cordelia's dreams. The play begins with an elderly King Lear surveying a map of his kingdom, and he asks his three daughters, which of you shall we say doth love us most? Tell me, my daughters, since now we will divest us both of rule, interest of territory, cares of state, which of you shall we say doth love us most? After he asks, which of you does love us most? Lear's first two daughters reply, they lay it on thick, full of flattery. Oh, you are my favorite ever. You are the, the best king and you're the best dad, which is exactly what the children of Narcissus have to do. This is how you have to respond when you're the child of a narcissist. And they're rewarded for it. Lear gives them territory. But then comes his favorite daughter, Cordelia. What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? Speak. Nothing, my lord. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond, no more, nor less. Ah, uh-huh, Cordelia, mend your speech a little, lest you may mar your fortunes. You heard what Lear said there. Mend your speech a little, Cordelia, lest it mar your fortunes. She doesn't mend her speech. She says she loves her father according to their bond, but she's not going to flatter him. And she points out, my other two sisters are married. Why are they saying all these wonderful things about how you are like the first in their minds and the first in their hearts when they're married? Their husbands should be first in their hearts. Lear cannot handle that Cordelia just tells him the truth, that she, yes, she loves him, but she's not going to flatter him. Lear erupts a titanic fury. Listen to the lines in which he disclaims his favorite daughter, Cordelia, saying, now on I shall consider you a stranger to my heart. Here I disclaim all my paternal care, propinquity, and property of blood, and as a stranger to my heart and me, hold thee from this forever. The barbarous Scythian, or he that makes his generation messes to gorge his appetite, shall to my bosom be as well neighbored, pitied and relieved as thou my sometime daughter. Good my Peace, Kent! Come not between the dragon and his wrath. I love that last line that, that Lear offers to Kent, his like stalwart soldier who's at his side, who served him in wars. Kent tries to talk him out of this like insanity 
of railing against Cordelia, throwing her out of the kingdom, giving her no land. Kent tries to step in. What does Lear say? Kent, come not between the dragon and his wrath. The whole rest of the play is about the dragon being consumed by his wrath. His senility gets worse and worse. He falls into despair slash madness. It's hard to discern the difference because he's rebelling against nature. There's a point in which he stands on this blasted heath in the middle of a thunderstorm, like shouting down um, the thunderstorm, blow wind, crack your cheeks. It's, it's, it's a picture of kind of pure narcissism. Nothing can stand in my way. Everything must serve this, this gigantic chasm inside me called my ego. So Lear was written around, we think, 1605, 1606. Two years earlier, around the time of Othello, the moment had come for England. This is a momentous event. Everyone was worried what was going to happen to their queen. Was she going to be able to bear, uh, excuse me, she was not going to be able to bear a child. Who was going to take the throne? Was there going to be chaos? No. Wonderful. A peaceful transition. So after Queen Elizabeth, the virgin queen, dies, King James I assumes the throne. So this is a huge relief. James was the son of Henry VII's daughter, Margaret. And he had been king of Scotland for 36 years when Queen Elizabeth died. So he comes in, he's seasoned, he's ready to go. They're not putting some you know, 14-year-old on the throne, which happened plenty of times. Um, And when he becomes king of England, having been the king of Scotland, he decides, let's combine these two kingdoms. The Scots are not having this. I mean, not at all. So it's too soon. James fails in his attempt, but he stays on the throne of England. Now, King James is famous for a couple of things aside from being the successor to Queen Elizabeth I, he orders a new translation of the Bible, which became known as the authorized King James Version of the Bible. This is, it's funny because I think that the King James Version is kind of like this. Now it has a reputation as being um, the kind of, rigid, hyper-Orthodox Christians' preferred version of the Bible. But I don't want to be distracted from recognizing the King James Version is a brilliant piece of literature, a brilliant translation. Part of the reason that we still kind of lean into those old um, pronunciations is that it has such a wonderful rhythm to it and... It's just, it's in and of itself a really fine, beautiful piece of literature just as a translation. There's a rumor, I'm not going to go into it, 
I don't think it's true, like so many other rumors about Shakespeare's life, that Shakespeare was asked to translate one of the Psalms and he kind of smuggled his name in at the end of the Psalm. Like I said, if you want to look it up online, have a great time with it. The other thing that King James is kind of best remembered for, in addition to the King James version of the Bible, is he was a little bit obsessed with witchcraft and with demonology. And it appears that Shakespeare knew this. So there's a reason why King James was a little bit obsessed with witchcraft. In 1589, when he's king of Scotland, he is betrothed to Anne of Denmark. Anne of Denmark is going to cross the North Sea. She's going to float into King James's arms after she crosses the sea, and they're going to be married, and James can't wait. He's thrilled at the prospect of marrying Anne of Denmark. But bad news, a storm on the North Sea. James hears that this terrible storm has hit Anne's fleet, that many lives have been lost, and he fears the absolute worst. So what does he do? In an uncharacteristic show of bravery, he crosses the sea to collect Anne, his new bride. As he's crossing the sea, another storm whips up out of nowhere. He's got a retreat to Scotland, but the storm dissipates. He doesn't know, is Anne still alive? He crosses the sea, he makes it to Oslo, and there he finds out, yes, Anne has made it. She lived. They're married. But the episode has a real profound effect on James. He starts hearing whispers that these two storms were not accidents. They were the result of witchcraft. There was, according to these kind of rumors that James was listening to, a witchcraft conspiracy that aimed at the murder of the king and his bride, Anne. And from that moment, James becomes obsessed with witches. He even wrote a book about it called Demonology. And you can, you can still buy the book today, but not from, you're not going to buy it from that massive bookseller. If you care about booksellers and authors, you'll buy it on bookshop.org. Maybe you'll even buy it from our friends David and Bethany Kern, owners of Goldberry Books, who will benefit from your patronage. You can read Demonology by King James. A couple years after King James assumes the throne in England, Shakespeare's acting company, which was then called the Lord Chamberlain's Men, becomes the King's Men. Shakespeare knew who he was writing for. He's writing for the new king. And so how does he start his newest play? He starts... I Something wicked is my God. ...with witches. So this is, of course, the play Macbeth. Um, the play's plot is absolutely, it's a barn burner. It's, it's a wonderful plot. The writing is magnificent. This is, 
maybe Shakespeare's most famous, um, I don't know, most esteemed play. It begins with three witches. These witches predict to Macbeth in this kind of strange idiomatic language that he will become king, but it's stated in kind of a riddle. Macbeth takes this along with his wife to be permission that he can kill King Duncan. The witches come along. Hey, Macbeth, double, double toil and trouble. You will be king hereafter. Macbeth is like, yeah, okay, great. Then I, you know, sure. That means I should kill the king, right? So he and Lady Macbeth conspire to kill the king. It goes terribly wrong. Even while they're still thinking about it, nature begins to revolt. After they do the deed, friends are betrayed, and and soon insanity reigns across Macbeth's kingdom. Macbeth, the play, is so bloody and so vengeful that a kind of myth has developed around the play. The myth is, the play's cursed. The myth, so the mythology is this, if an actor speaks the name of Macbeth from the stage, but it's not during rehearsal or a performance, some disaster will happen. So if you're on a stage, you can't say the word Macbeth. You instead have to call it something like the Scottish play or the Bard's play. And everyone will know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. He's just not, he's afraid to say Macbeth, you know, he believes in the curse. So supposedly this, this play was cursed from the very beginning. And why was it cursed from the very beginning? Well, the story is that a coven of witches heard a performance of the play and they heard that Shakespeare had written actual curses from actual witches into his play. Like he put real sorcery into his text. And so the story is this coven of witches, they get upset about it and they say, okay, fine. We're going to curse this play. Whenever somebody like says the name Macbeth from the stage, it's not in rehearsal or performance. It's going to go really wrong. It seems pretty silly. It seems pretty superstitious, superstitious, except people believe that in 1606, during the disastrous very first performance of the play, the actor playing Lady Macbeth died suddenly. Shakespeare himself had to step into the role. That's the kind of hocus pocus rumor around it. I know. It's absurd. It's silly. Except there has been so much calamity around the play, like tons of injuries and fires and deaths. In fact, 1849, Manhattan, New York City. This is just one example. The Astor Opera House erupted into a riot that killed 25 people, injured 120. The state militia had to be called out for the first time in the state's history to put down the riot. Why did the riot start? over a dispute involving the play Macbeth. The longer story is the pro-Ireland crowd wanted their Irish actor to play Macbeth. And I think it was the pro-Italian crowd wanted their guy, the Italian, to play Macbeth. It was kind of like 
hidden class warfare. But it reinforced this notion of the curse of Macbeth. Laurence Olivier, during Laurence Olivier's performance of Macbeth, lost his voice the night before opening, and at one point he was standing on the stage when a massive stage weight fell. Missing him by just a few inches, it would have killed him stone dead. I actually got a taste of the curse myself. I played Macbeth about eight or nine years ago. And opening night, no problem. Pull off the play, no hitches. Just before our second performance, I was out playing basketball. A foolish decision. I turned my ankle over terribly, like I can barely walk. It turns black and blue. It's all swollen. It was ridiculous. And of course, I showed up with a limp. I showed people my ankle. And everybody in the cast who knows the curse of Macbeth is like, Tam, what are you doing? You must have sent Macbeth from the stage. You guys, it wasn't just me. It wasn't just the Astor Opera House. It wasn't just Laurence Olivier. You guys, it was even, even Chris Rock has suffered from the curse. I'm out here. Uh-oh. Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes, that was the slap. Earlier during the 94th annual Academy Awards, Chris Rock spoke the play's name from the stage. That's what you get, Chris Rock. Who knew that it was all about the Macbeth curse? Well, that's what it was. Back to the actual play. The play is bleak. It concludes with Macbeth meeting his just reward, but not before he speaks some of the most famous monologues in Shakespeare's corpus, including this one. Wherefore was that crack? The queen, my lord, is dead. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow. And tomorrow. And tomorrow. Creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour up on the stage. And then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot. Full of sound and fury. Signifying nothing. Macbeth is one of our great psychological pictures of megalomania and its effects. 
The play Macbeth was followed in 1606-1607 by Antony and Cleopatra. And that was followed by my nomination for what is the most underrated of Shakespeare's plays, and that is Coriolanus. I love Coriolanus. I have never seen a live performance of Coriolanus. The story is taken from one of Shakespeare's favorite historical sources, that is Plutarch's Lives. It tells the story of this brilliant Roman general, Caius Martius, who repeatedly saves Rome from her her most feared enemy, the Volscians. He defeats the Volscians in the city of Corioli, and then he gets nicknamed Coriolanus. That's where he fluttered the Volskis. I fluttered them in in Corioli. So Coriolanus, following his success, seeks to become counsel, this kind of um, high political office. But in order to do so, he kind of has to make an appeal to the plebes and their representatives, the tribunes. The plebes and the tribunes realize just how arrogant Coriolanus is, and he is beyond arrogant. And so this, talk about a class warfare, like the lower levels, the lower classes hate him because he won't pay tribute to them. He won't. There's a scene in which he's supposed to stand against these pillars after the battle and let the plebes come inspect his war wounds. He considers this the most grotesque insult. He hates this. Absolutely despises it. And he despises them too. The crows who would peck out the eyes of the eagles. So, he amasses so much hostility from the tribunes that they banish him. They banish him. And this is the scene, this is played by one of my favorite actors playing the role of Coriolanus, Alan Howard. Alan Howard never really made it as a Hollywood star. I don't even know that he attempted. The only thing that I could find in his acting bio was the voice of Sauron. In the Lord of the Rings, it's the only thing that I could find in his kind of like Hollywood acting bio. But here he is, confronted by the tribunes. And this is what he says to them. Were I as patient as the midnight sleep by Jove to be my mind? It is a mind that shall remain a poison where it is, not poison any further. Shall remain... Hear you this triton of the minnows. Mark you his absolute shall. Twas from the cannon. Shall! After Coriolanus, this is probably his last great tragedy. He also writes Timon of Athens and Pericles, Prince of Tyre. But really Coriolanus is the last of his massive, tragic masterpieces. That's when William Shakespeare begins to turn toward home. So this begins his final period, his last phase of playwriting. This final period goes from 1607 until 1613. And his plays really shift if the tragedies 
are known for their bloodshed, for the unhappy failures of great kings, of narcissists. This final period is a kind of a, a return to innocence in a way. His work grows lighter and more playful. And in many places, it becomes almost magical. So the four of the last plays that he wrote are often called fantasies or romances, and they're full of magic and miracles. One example is from the play, The Winter's Tale, a, a delightful play. In The Winter's Tale, King Leontes is our main character. And King Leontes, early on in the play, suspects that his wife, Hermione, is cheating on him with Leontes' best friend, Polixenes, King Polixenes. He suspects this and he flies into an absolute rage. Leontes flies into an absolute rage, suspects Hermione of cheating, puts her on trial, and he puts her to death. Or death. Or does he? It's, it's, it sure seems as if she has been like, executed. We don't see her after the midpoint of the play. But then, during the final scene of the play, Leontes is invited into this kind of sculpture garden. At, at this point, Leontes knows that he had unjustly accused his wife but now standing and, and put her to death. He's been without her all of these years. But in the sculpture garden, he's invited by Hermione's best woman to come stand before a statue of Hermione that will, will commemorate her and honor her. And Leontes steps closer to the statue and he realizes that the statue is so lifelike, it's so well done, that he even begins to think that the statue is breathing. Still, methinks there is an air comes from her. What fine chisel could ever yet cut breath? Leontes watches until the statue of Hermione, his supposedly deceased wife, actually begins to move. You perceive she stirs? Do not start. For her action shall be holy, as you hear my spell is lawful. You see her die again, for then you kill her double. Present your arm. When she was young, you wooed her. Now in age, is she become the suitor? Oh, she's warm. If this be magic, let it be an art lawful as eating. And indeed, the statue has indeed moved. Hermione has returned to life. So the Winter's Tale has that, that element of magic, of, of fantasy, 
And that's a real mark of Shakespeare's last period of plays. They're full of magic and hope and reunion. And they culminate with the last great play that Shakespeare wrote by himself, which is called The Tempest. The Tempest is a place set on a remote island, and it's ruled by a magician, Prospero. Prospero lives there with his daughter, Miranda, and the whole play is full of music and song, and it evokes enchantment. And it's really easy to kind of read the play as a fable about art and creation, because the centerpiece character, this magician, Prospero, he is complex, he is contradictory, he has the power of magic, he has the power to kind of weave tales to his liking. And many people see that this character, Prospero, might be a sort of stand-in for Shakespeare himself, might be a sort of cipher for the great playwright who's nearing his retirement. The play concludes with wonderful lines that seem to be a sort of farewell from Shakespeare, a, a kind of conclusion to his career and a signal of his coming retirement. Our revels now are ended. And these are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air into thin air. So, traditionally speaking, The Tempest is taken to be Shakespeare's last play. There are other plays that are written around this time. Cymbeline, as I mentioned, The Winter's Tale. Um, there's a play called Cardenio that some people believe might be Shakespeare's work. And there's two other plays that Shakespeare wrote with uh, a friend named John Fletcher. Those plays are Henry VIII and The Two Noble kin Kinsmen. They're very rarely produced. They're not considered um, very good works, but they are probably the very, very last two plays that he wrote, though he did write it with help. In March of 1613, Shakespeare and three associates agree to purchase The Gatehouse, they buy it from the former Dominican Priory in London known as Blackfriars, and the theater that they buy becomes Blackfriars. It becomes the Playhouse Blackfriars. Also that year, the globe burns down during a performance of Henry VIII, written by, uh, with the help of John Fletcher. But it's rebuilt within a year. Um, no terrible damage done. Three years later, William Shakespeare, now having returned home to Stratford-upon-Avon, having left the actor's life in London, in 1616, Shakespeare dies. How did he die? Like everything with his life, the details are scant. We do have a diary entry from John Ward, who is the vicar of Holy Trinity Church, and he writes in his diary that Shakespeare had met up the night before his death for a night of hard drinking with two literary friends, 
Michael Drayton and Ben Johnson. And John Ward writes in his diary, Shakespeare, Drayton, and Ben Johnson had a merry meeting, and it seems drank too hard for Shakespeare died of a fever there contracted. So maybe he died of fever. The only problem with that diary entry was it was written 50 years after Shakespeare's death. So who knows? We don't know. Other scholars suspect typhoid. It would have gone undiagnosed in Shakespeare's time, but it would have brought on a fever. Um, it's contracted through unclean liquids. So yeah, if Shakespeare had um, been out drinking, maybe he got some bad, impure rum, bad water, what have you. It's conjecture. Today, you can visit his grave at Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon, and even for a small fee, you can walk up to the church's chancel and view the epitaph engraved on the stone. Here's what it says. It's believed to be written by Shakespeare. Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. Ten years later, well, less than that, actually, seven years later, 1623, Shakespeare's widow, Anne, dies. And later that year comes the first publication of the first authorized collection known as the First Folio. The First Folio was a collection of Shakespeare's plays by two of his friends. We are forever ever in their debt. Because in Shakespeare's day, he probably did not write out, there, there probably existed very few full copies of his plays, because what he would do was he would write sides for each of his characters. So, um, or for each of his actors, I should say. So the character who's playing Kent in King Lear only gets Kent's lines. The character who's playing, the actor who's playing Cordelia only gets Cordelia's lines. Lear only gets Lear's lines. So these two friends of Shakespeare's went back to Shakespeare's actors and they got together their side books and also probably from memory got them to recite the lines that they knew that they had performed over and over and over. And from those side books, prompt books, and memories, they put together the first folio. These two friends of his wrote in the foreword, quote, Shakespeare was a happy imitator of nature and was a most gentle expressor of it. His mind and hand went together. And what he thought he uttered with that easiness that we have scarce received from him a blot in his papers. Read him, therefore, and again, and again. And if you do not like him, surely you are in some manifest danger not to understand him. I love them. I, I love that. If you do not like him, the problem is probably you. It's not him. It's probably you. Um, Speaking of not understanding Shakespeare, I, if you know me, you know that I'm on a little bit of a crusade to have younger people fall in love with Shakespeare. Everybody feels like they have to respect Shakespeare, um, but very 
few of our students, even our English students, graduate high school, graduate college, really coming to have loved our greatest playwright. So my crusade is about a different teaching method that helps students fall in love. And I've seen it. I've got, I, it, it works. If you don't ask your students to sit in a desk and just read out Shakespeare and get bored out of their skulls, there's a different way to do it. And if you want to learn about that different way of doing, doing it, I encourage you to go to timteachesshakespeare.com. I've got um, also lots of free Shakespeare scenes. So if you want to try your hand, you know, maybe in your class with some students, you want to get some friends together and perform some Shakespeare scenes, I've got 40 scenes that have been kind of like pared down and edited for like simple performance. And you can find those for free on my website, timteachesshakespeare.com. What can we say about William Shakespeare in conclusion? He utterly transformed European theater. Um, he expanded what we came to expect from theater through innovation, through plot, but really through language and psychological insight. Those are the two gifts that he had that just seem like no one can compare with him. His ability with the language is just remarkable. The Oxford English Dictionary records over 2,000 words that were coined by Shakespeare. Um, so many of his phrases have made our way into his everyday speech. So break the ice, foregone conclusion. Those are Shakespeare's. One fell swoop, good riddance, brave new world. The list goes on and on and on. Virginia Woolf, the novelist, wrote that Shakespeare was the word-coining genius who lived as though thought had been plunged into a sea of words and came up dripping. John Dryden, the poet, described Shakespeare as the man who, of all modern and perhaps ancient poets, had the largest and most comprehensive soul. But Shakespeare's magic could not be copied. Within that circle, none durst walk but he. He was naturally learned. He needed not the spectacles of books to read nature. He looked inward and found her there. I, as you know, and am an unabashed fan of William Shakespeare. It's been a delight to be with you through this two-part life of Shakespeare. I will follow it up probably with your questions and answers uh, later on this month. And I might do a couple of other episodes that are more um, biographical. Uh, this really emphasized the plays. I lean very heavily on the tragedies, but it might be fun to just do a kind of rumors and innuendos and myths and legends about Shakespeare's life. Um, as I mentioned early in the first part of this life of Shakespeare, the amount of information they have about his life is scant, but that has not stopped people from 
creating all sorts of legends and mythology around him. And it might also be fun to kind of explore the question, was one man, William Shakespeare, really the author of the works of Shakespeare? I don't think that's much of a real academic debate, but it is a fun little exercise in authorship that might be fun to explore. Until then, I do want to thank you for tuning in, and I encourage you to follow along with the plays, the thing, as we tackle act by act the entire works of Shakespeare. If you ever want to reach out to me, I would love to hear from you. You can find me on our Sister Podcast's Facebook page. That Sister Podcast is called Close Reads. I'm a regular contributor on that podcast as well. If you ever want to reach out to me, questions, comments, criticisms, um, please post there. I would love to hear from you. If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. And this weak and idle theme, no more yielding but to dream. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. Else the puck a liar call. So good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends. And Robin shall restore amends. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.